So many people really do care about the problems that we're seeing in almost all areas of Montana, being that the, the market is priced as if our wages are keeping up with it. And a lot of people that live here can't afford to buy. It's definitely something that's going to take a lot of creative solutions and partnerships. There are a lot of houses around here, but they're vacation rentals. And when they do go up for sale, a young family can't afford them. We need to make sure that we maintain who we are as a community. We're trying to build more grassroots leadership development programs across the state so we can have more communities that are doing really, really great. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet for all. Our aim is to bridge divides and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. So it's been a few months since our last podcast episode, but rest assured we've been busy putting together stories to share. This past summer, we turned our attention to our home state of Montana, and for at least the next six months, we'll be exclusively focusing on stories from folks within the state who work for strong communities, healthy land, waters, and wildlife, and the important place where it all intersects. We believe that the pressures and the inspiring work that takes place in Montana can be applied to concepts globally. So whether you call Montana your home or you're somewhere across the world, we encourage you to tune in. The reason we've stepped away from the podcast recently is because we've been on the road, traveling to communities around Montana to film a series of short documentary films and accompanying podcast episodes. The series is titled Life in the Landscape, and we'll look at ways to improve our relationships, those between ourselves and the land and ourselves and those who may hold different values or priorities. The series shares stories of those who interact with the complexities of Montana's land, waters, and communities, looking at the success and value in collaborative and locally-led initiatives. We'll hear unique perspectives from ranchers, scientists, local leaders, and so much more from within Montana's rural and tribal communities. Viewers will witness how the characters are working together to promote resilient communities and landscapes for all life to thrive. Stay tuned and follow along on our Instagram to keep updated on that project. You can also support the Life in the Landscape project with a tax-deductible contribution, which right now will be doubled thanks to a very generous match grant. Find out more at our site, storiesforaction.org backslash general dash six. Today's episode looks at some of the changes and pressures being felt in Montana communities and the importance of community involvement in navigating how this change can occur in a sustainable way. Changes are nothing new for Montana communities, really since settlers began moving into the West and ongoing as industries and trends shifted Populations ebbed and flowed, and people from all corners ventured to make Montana their home, seeking the open space and solitude that Visit Montana billboards had promised. But as you listen to residents from around the state, they know that the changes currently taking place are a bit more ramped up than before. Trends of folks with higher, out-of-state incomes moving into Montana have been on the rise for decades. But with the pandemic, these trends are amplified. As housing prices skyrocket, working-class local residents are unable to afford to stay, making many towns, large and small, feel pressures in their own sustainability. Houses being turned into vacation rentals and other forms of absentee owners, whether it's in cities and towns or in ranch communities, 
equates to pressures of decreasing school enrollment, lack of employees for local businesses, reduction in community volunteers for essential programs, or emergency services. For example, over 400 of Montana's 435 fire departments rely on volunteer personnel. Then we look at the environmental impact of this rapid growth, lack of open space for wildlife corridors, impact on watersheds and aquifers, towns not being able to get ahead of the growth with thoughtful zoning. There are so many layers to these issues, so it's important to continue to seek stories from all of the facets to continue this conversation. In today's episode, we'll hear from three Montana residents who are involved in work that strives to make sure that as these changes occur, they're done in ways that sustain the well-being of local communities. We'll hear from a woman in a small Montana town who joined other community members to be proactive with the felt pressures of rapid growth. We'll speak with the director of a statewide nonprofit organization about the community land trust model as a way of ensuring long-term housing and farmland affordability. And finally, we'll hear from someone who's working on a different type of change occurring in Montana's towns and who explains why we should rethink the term rural decline. Our first guest today is Pat Baltzley, a resident of Gardner, Montana, which is located at the north entrance of Yellowstone National Park. Pat never saw herself as a community advocate, but she's a member of Gardner's school board and has spent her career working in education. As Gardner continued to feel pressures from rising home prices, massive increases in homes and apartments being turned into vacation rentals, and decreases in the school enrollment, her and a group of other residents came together to be proactive in the future of their community and form the group Successful Gardener. She tells me that as the town was growing, the community was shrinking, a reality that many others can relate to, I'm sure. Pat speaks with us about the realities of this growth and shares the inspiration for the power that local residents can have in guiding their community. Gardner is such a unique community. It is a gateway community, which means it sits right outside the gate of Yellowstone National Park. And five mi- when you go five miles into the gate, you're in Wyoming. So we sit on the border of Montana and Wyoming, and uh, we are south of Livingston, Montana. We are nestled amongst mountains. We are bordered by the park on, of course, a lot of our sides. And then we also border national and state forest lands, which is part of the issue of our community. There's not much to grow out. And um, we sit, the Yellowstone River goes right through our town, which is wonderful. So we attract a lot of tourists, and that's actually how I came to be in uh, Gardner. Um, my husband and I started going to Yellowstone years ago, so we started coming in the winter time. It's the only way you can get into Yellowstone um, after November and uh, before April. So we discovered Gardner and fell in love with the unique community that Gardner is. And just in your time of being there, what have you seen changed, you know, and specifics of what it was, what you knew about it then, what has changed since then? So my husband and I bought the house that we live in, and I live right in the heart of Gardner. And um, we bought our house in 2010. And I would say, just to give an idea, I'm not sure we could afford this place if it was 2021 and we were looking for a house. And that might say a lot. 
I have seen a lot of revitalization of buildings in Gardner over the, the, the years. We've seen some nice revitalization of, say, our grocery store has really expanded, et cetera. People have torn down some old houses and put up new houses. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those houses are now vacation rental houses. And that's part of when we, you know, go into what some of the challenges are. You'll see that. We did have a fire last year in 2020, which took out a corner of our town right on Park Street and Main Street. So it was actually right across the street from where I live. And it took out some two of our bar areas. One of the bars included a restaurant and then another restaurant. Uh, so that impacts us from a tourist perspective. We were actually down two restaurants. And then the previous year, another restaurant had closed across street and they had taken that down so when you first come into Gardner from the park you see two big huge vacant lots and um, that's for the residents it speaks of the evolution of a town what happens there are things that happen and you have to figure out how to move on and not just let it stay that way the owners were great it was interesting the fire took out buildings that were owned by all this by one couple and they put together a food truck lot this year in place of one of the lots so we do have some very creative business owners I, I do feel like you know Gardner has changed since we've been here some of the businesses have changed I'm also school board chair and we've seen a declining enrollment in our school when I first became school board chair in 2013 we had 250 students k-12 which speaks to how small our community is. Uh, we currently have about 137. And families have moved out. Houses have been bought that um, at a very high price that young families can't afford. The park service has been affected because they can't always hire people because of the lack of housing. The resort company, um, which currently is Zantera, has also experienced that issue. Both of those, the National Park Service and Zantera, are doing some things to build housing, and hopefully that will be a good thing for the future. But right now they're in the process of developing their plans and, you know, trying to figure out what that looks like. And uh, then they're going to try and attract more family type of um, people to be part of their employment. So those elements, you know, those are all kind of contributors to why you found yourself in your current work and be becoming a part of Successful Gardener, right? Can you tell me kind of how that group came about in a nutshell? Um, yeah. And, and what those shared concerns were with folks in the community, right? It started with just fellow community members having agreement on something's gotta, gotta change here. One of the things that I didn't mention is that we are not incorporated. There is no local governance. So, when I first came into Gardner, there had been some community organizations um, that looked at different aspects of Gardner. So for example, um, there's the Greater Gardner Community Council, which was trying to solve some of the problems like um, who snow shovels the bridge across the Yellowstone River? Um, what are we gonna do when our lights go out? Some of it's Park County, yes, they do that. Who's gonna contact them? How are we going to manage this? 
What about our side roads that are starting to deteriorate, those kinds of things. And trying to be an, uh, a community advocate organization. And then there were some other organizations that were dealing with the environment and dealing with other things. So there was a number of different community organizations. So the Greater Gardner Community Council said, we may need a little help in some strategic planning for our community because we can see that there's changes that are happening. So they actually um, contacted Future West, which is an organization that supports helping communities with a variety of things. And in this case, it was trying to be a community advocate and helping us organize for that. So we started out as a small group with Future West facilitating us. And the small group consisted of a representative from all of these different organizations sitting at the table trying to figure out what is it that we wanted to do. So we ultimately figured out that we need to get more community members involved. And so we ended up with some community forums that uh, two nights of conversation with community. Uh, we split into different groups. We looked at different aspects, some of the challenges, housing, economy, um, environment, those kinds of things. And Future West recorded all of the conversations and what the vision might be for Gardner going forward. We informally asked the community, what direction should we head in as far as how we govern ourselves? And it was, should we just stay the way we are? Should we work with Park County and look at that as a partnership with maybe some zoning options? Or should we incorporate? Now, I will say that um, this was informal because it was just for the people who happened to attend the forum. And so it didn't represent the whole community. And the majority, it was really more towards working with Park County. You know, there was not as many for let's stay the way we are, because we all know that there has to be something. Incorporation is kind of a tricky thing. We're not quite sure we're headed that because some people came to this community because they like the idea of, of no local governance. So what we did after that is we formed um, Future West's role was ended. And one of the suggestions was to put forward maybe a neighborhood plan. So there's a group of us that we asked for any volunteers and a group formed and uh, to put together a neighborhood plan. So where we are right now in the successful gardener is that we're in the process of drafting a neighborhood plan that's gone to community organizations and it will go to the community actually in November, um, we're hoping, and then be something that would represent what Gardner is all about. So our voice is heard at the county level because right now our voice is not heard. Who do you contact? There's, there's no governance. So if there's questions about what the vision is, they don't have anybody to contact. So we thought at least that'd be a starting point. So that's where we are. We're in the process of trying to put together what we hope would represent the community vision and where do we wanna go? What do we want to be as a community? And those elements are, so you'd put them forth in front of the county, and are they things that would be things that could be, you know, adjusted by 
policy or are they kind of also just kind of mission guiding statements? Um, if you have any like specific examples of some of those elements, yeah. so folks see just what yeah. are asks that you can have of the county. So the neighborhood plan would probably give a um, the county at least an idea of a vision so that when they're putting together their their zoning plans. We are part of Park County. So when they put together their zoning plans, you know, we have to abide by them. But is this something that would be part of what we have as a vision? So we ended up with eight goals. And they were things like maintaining our sense of community. We don't want to dissipate being a community and just be a gateway place where there's businesses that serve tourists. We want to actually be a community where we come together at certain places, et cetera. So some of that is just to give them an idea of what it is that we might like to be as a community. We also are, we feel like we're a little bit of a historic community. And so we want to maintain that historic character as well while moving forward. Another one was to really maintain a healthy natural ecosystem. There is a lot of traffic in our area during the season. There are a lot of people who tromp through our ecosystems and most of them respect the ecosystem. We have had some issues with campers who, you know, are not following what we would call camping etiquette. You know, we are surrounded by public lands. And so part of what our mission is as a community is, you know, preserving the natural resources that we have. So how do we do that? And where does that fit into Park County where the seat is about 54 miles away from us? And that's where the you know county commissioners are are they thinking about that when, when you know, regulations come out, et cetera? Uh, another one is looking at the managed physical growth and development. You know, we are limited because as I explained before, we're surrounded by public land and we have a particular topography, some of which, which includes, you know, mountains, et cetera. So, so where do we go? So trying to look at that physical growth and development and making sure that that doesn't overtake what we're all about and trying to have our voice at the table as it relates to that. Community services came out of the forum a lot. Um, we are 50 some miles away from a hospital. You know, we do have a very understaffed but very well qualified volunteer system for our fire and ambulance service, but we still, community services, our older population, you know, how do they get to? regular appointments, et cetera. Is there some sort of bus service, some sort of way that we can figure out our emergency services and our medical services? So that one is an interesting one that, you know, we really want to look to Park County to maybe help us on that one. Our infrastructure was another one, maintenance of roads. Uh, We do have concerns about safe pedestrian passages. So, you know, just how do we advocate for that in our community? And a big one, affordable quality housing that meets our local demand. And that's a big one. There are a lot of houses around here, but they're vacation rentals. And when they do go up for sale, 
a young family can't afford them. So we've been working with HRDC in another project um, and uh, you know, may have some capabilities. They helped us purchase some property that we might be able to build affordable housing on. That's in development through HRDC. So you know, our service industry requires a lot of people who are part of the restaurant business, part of you know shops, et cetera, and employee housing is often tough. So housing is a big one. And for me, that's how I got involved in the um, successful gardener because the school board chair, I see that that's the impact of our declining enrollment. And the last one was really you know, a sustainable economy. What we decided at the community forums that uh, Future West facilitated for us was that we do recognize that we do have a tourist economy that's changed from years ago. There was a mine around here and that, that was a big part of the community. So we are a tourist community. And so we need to kind of make sure that those business activities are compatible with Gardner's vision and that we you know, maintain who we are as a community while being able to service the tourists that are naturally gonna come in because we're a gateway community. So I hope that gives you a little bit of an idea of what the, the direction that this neighborhood plan is going. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, you guys have done a great job of really taking a holistic approach to what you need. You know, you guys have obviously put a lot of time and taken a lot of input in this. So there's not many blind spots there, which is really important. Um, and and also with the knowledge that things will adjust and adapt to as far as your needs and your plan as as the community changes. And something you had said to the phone on the phone with me when we spoke earlier, that I'm sure a lot of places nationally, not just in Montana, can relate with is you know as we see these places grow, the community shrinks in a lot of ways. And for folks who may not have ever even been a part of of a place where you really have that sense of community and are in touch with that community, what exactly does that? imply you know yeah. if you can paint the picture of what that means sure. of as this growth happens that a community can be shrinking simultaneously and, and the things that the specifics that are impacted by that so during the summer if you came here it would be a bustling you would see a lot of people on the streets um a lot of them are tourists um there's a lot of seasonal workers covid took away some of the um, opportunity for bringing in seasonal workers. So we do have, we're, we're probably understaffed in the places where we are, but typically pre-COVID you would see an influx. And I would say our community population might be around 2000. Well, then you get to November to April and we are around I heard a number the other day from the 2020 census, we actually have gone down and we used to be around 875, we're now around 823. And so it looks like a ghost town. And we do have community members who own part of their business and part of their income are vacation rentals. And that's great. And it's an opportunity to be able to have, you know, a different way of providing income for your family. And it's great. 
Well, what happens is when they, everything starts changing to vacation rentals, what you had just referred to, you lose kind of that community sense where we used to get together and do things as a community. And, you know, that's, that's harder these days because there isn't as many of us, et cetera. So one of the things that we're trying to do is balance that tourism economy with maintaining a community. So for example, I was referring to what the work with HRDC and the intent would be to maybe build some affordable housing that might be able to house families that would then be part of the community. We could continue to still grow as a community and still be able to support this tourist economy. So I'm not quite sure, Laura, that we've figured this out because you know part of our mission is we we want to be a vibrant community. And that means you know where people know each other, where you know you do gather for community events. Um, we have our organizations, the community organizations are really trying, you know, some of our annual events are starting to pop up again. Um, we had a brew fest and in August, we had our 5K and it's run by the Bear Creek Council. And, and um, that's always been a lot of fun. We used to have a, you know, a Christmas stroll, those kinds of things. And so it's really trying to marry those two things that we're finding difficult because we do recognize that people who live in the town benefit from tourists coming in. So you want them to still benefit. And we've got to figure out how we can grow as a community while still benefiting our community members. And I think that's what we're, we're finding. That's the big challenge and trying to figure out ways to do that is really what we're, we're trying to do. So we have a changing community. There was an old guard here who had a different community as their community growing up and they're having a hard time understanding the changes and the need for change. And we've got a younger community who may be a little bit more transient. And so it's the people in the middle that we're trying to, you know, longtime residents who are trying to figure out how, how can I maintain my family life here and, you know, continue to grow and have the opportunities that I want my children to have, be still a community member, but still grow as our family income and those kinds of things. But Yeah, no, that's, that's really well put. And something I'm sure so many folks can relate to in other communities around the state. And it's inspiring to see that yourself and your group are moving forward in a way to be proactive in that and not just seeing these issues that are, you know, naming the pressures, but like, okay, well then let's get together and be proactive and, and create that community. And it's a, it's a tall order, right? And there's no silver bullet in any by any means, but if you can just start to put out the vision that you have and then follow through, then um, you can start to see those things coming about. So it's inspiring to see. And with that, for your group with Successful Gardener, if you can speak to, you know, that it's fully community run. I'm not sure if it's fully volunteer run, but- it's all, it's all volunteer. Okay. If you can speak to that, because I'm sure a lot of other um, groups and communities can relate to that as well, whether they've tried to start an ad hoc group too in their own places and who have also run into challenges with that of just realistic challenges in having a group that's community volunteer led and some of the ways that you guys have tried to navigate that. 
Yeah, that's, that's part of our challenge. I do have to say from about May to the end of October, so the beginning of November, the people who are the normal volunteers are business owners. They work in the park. That is the major part of their business. So it's hard for us to do anything during that time period. Consequently, when we look for people to, to help us it's, I can't, I can't do that, you know, right now. So this November to April is usually this time period when we have more voices that, you know, really do um, say, okay, now I can think, now I can come in, now I might be able to commit. We just started up our meetings again. Um, we're all on other organizations. Um, one of them is on the Greater Gardner Community Council. One is on the... Um, the volunteer fire department. She's also part of search and rescue. So of course, during the summer, she has been extremely busy. Another one has been part of the Gardner Chamber of Commerce. So that's been really good to have, um, you know, she's a business owner. So she's been part of that organization. And I've been representing the school as school board chair. So we all have other community organizations that we're volunteering through. And so it does make it really difficult. I don't consider myself a community advocate. I've been an educator for years. So I've been in the, the education world and, you know, I'm, tr I'm trying to figure this out and just to have a voice. So yeah, that volunteer part is really hard. For sure. It's, and I think a lot of times with we um, smaller communities too, it's a lot of the same players who are involved with different things. And so then you run into volunteer burnout and everyone's spread thin. Can you speak to the importance then too of partnerships and working in collaboration with other groups that exist, um, whether it's in your community or at a you know broader level of a, a group that could potentially share resources for the work, You know, just the importance of finding those partnerships and, and working together collaboratively? So as I started out at the beginning, there are a lot of community organizations here in Gardner. And one of the things that we talked about when we developed the neighborhood plan is we put together these eight goals. And when we looked at the eight goals, we said, you know what? We were hoping that a community organization could find themselves in one of the goals and then say, yeah, that's something that we could take on, that we could do. And so, for example, we've got the Greater Gardner Community Council, and maybe they might, you know, take on something that deals with, all right, advocating for the infrastructure. Um, those kinds of things. We've got um, the Bear Creek Council, which is really looking at the environment. So do they see themselves in the goal? So we were hoping that some of these community organizations, if we don't go down the path of one governing body, that different organizations would find themselves in the neighborhood plan and being able to take that on and to advocate for it. The big picture of the neighborhood plan is for Park County to understand what Gardner wants to be. The smaller picture is, can we, as these volunteer organizations, take on these and could it help us guide us in what we're doing so that ultimately it gets together? So the Gardner Resort Tax Board solicits applications for ways that we can have those funds that are collected as part of the resort tax to be giving back to the community. 
you know, if they have the neighborhood plan, does that help them guide the vision of what to accept as applications and those kinds of things? So, you know, that's what we were hoping we could do with these community organizations, kind of have them be, you know, spokes on a wheel that's all going in the same direction. You know, that's what we hope happens. We're not sure what will happen. <laughs> so, yeah, well, it makes it kind of exciting to be speaking with you at this. I know you guys have been at it for a, a while, but early stages um, and where you have that vision. And so just to, to keep track of how things grow and, and how that vision comes to fruition. It's exciting <laughs> and inspiring. Yeah. And um, any final thoughts or, you know, messages to put out there either to folks that are in other Montana communities that might be feeling similar pressures or looking to start their own community run group to kind of steer the direction of their, their location. Or if it's something to folks who may be looking at moving to Montana, you know, things to keep in mind um, as, as they're becoming a part and a new member of these communities. Well, my message to people who are becoming part of a community is to become part of the community, which means, you know, to really seek out what are the, the different avenues for your, your voice. I mean, I would learn first about the community. Uh, one of the most important things I also think is when you are putting together community advocacy groups, it's important to really establish that vision for the community because that sets the tone. If you are a community member, then when there are opportunities to be involved, even if it's just to go to a meeting about something, that would be minimally participate, be a community member. If you feel like you have a desire to have a little bit stronger advocacy emotion, then find the community organizations that might be in that particular community um, that you could become part of. You really do need to listen to the voices of all community members and to respect the different perspectives. We try and have a 360 perspectives, but we also need to realize that growth may be hard, but it is something that a community needs to do in order to meet the vision of whatever the community wants. I think that's where Gardner is struggling with right now. We wanna make sure that we do have a common vision and that's where the community can come into play. And then once that community vision is, agreed upon by all in the community, then that gives you the opportunity to say, all right, how are we going to do this? And what are some ways that we can move forward as a community, make some changes, et cetera. So, you know, be part of your community, participate at least in all meetings, make your voice heard. If you can volunteer on a community organization or to be part of something like this, it's great. Um, utilize your resources too. We utilized MSU Extension. We did early on utilize them. Future West was something that one of our organizations found. So and I'm sure there's others out there. So I think find the resources that are available to you in your area, I think are important as well. And I have to tell you, I am learning to be a community advocate and I feel really uncomfortable at times. And so that's, you know, that the other piece of advice is put yourself out there and, you know, just be 
as open as you can to say, you know, I'm trying and we need to figure this out. And, you know, we're not trying to come in and change everything around. We're just trying to make sure that we're moving ahead as a community. Because a lot of people complain in local venues and, but maybe don't do much about it. So we wanna, we wanna have people, you know, express their opinions, but also be willing to say, well, okay, this is how we can work on it. So. Exactly. And coming together to make that work happen and being appreciative of those who are stepping up and not just critical of Because <laughs> yeah. it's a lot, right? To put yourself out there and um, <laughs> and you're doing it purely for the good of the community, right? There's nothing self-serving yeah. about this There's work. So. <laughs> Thank you so much to Pat Baltzley for speaking with us. You can find more about this work at SuccessfulGardener.org. That's Gardner, G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R. Or at their Facebook page, also Successful Gardener. And for residents of Gardner, Pat says to keep an eye out in the Chamber of Commerce's newsletter, which you can sign up for, for information on how to give your input for the proposed neighborhood plan. That announcement should be coming this November. We hear now from Hermina Harold, who is the Executive Director for Trust Montana a statewide community land trust working to build up a permanently affordable stock of agricultural properties, commercial spaces, and quality homes for Montanans. Hermina speaks with us about the ripple effects of Montana's rising home and land prices and why this trust model offers a new perspective on home ownership. At first, I was really interested in social justice through um, social work and community organizing, and I, I still am, but um, at some point, it became clear to me that the built environment really affects people in, in huge ways and that I wanted to be part of the solution to some of the ways that that really brings people down. One of the first realizations that I had about uh, housing and land access being such an important part of, of social justice was um, I went to a community land trust conference in Athens, Georgia in 2009. And the keynote speaker was Shirley Sherrod. Um, and she is one of the founders of the community land trust movement who started it in Georgia in 1969. And just the, the work they put in to come up with this really smart way to subvert discrimination and discrimination in lending and in real, real estate and all of the ways that people are being kept down <laughs> economically, socially, they, they figured it out and they came up with this amazing model um, and then they got totally screwed over by the USDA and got their land taken away, even though they had developed this amazing tool to be able to access land. Um, and her story was just so inspiring because then 30 years later, they won a suit to get um, paid back for all of that land that was stolen from them by the USDA. So that was really inspiring. And I think at that point, I started to really understand the importance of land access. And at that point, I was already working at the North Missoula Community Development Corporation, which is the oldest community land trust in Montana. So that's great. And thank you for that. I was going to ask you to mention about that um, too, because it's such a great model of North Missoula Community Land Trust model and what they still have going. And mm-hmm. on that, if you can touch on this concept of community land trust for those, those folks who don't know or aren't familiar with that model. Um, As you mentioned, it's not a new concept, right? But for some folks, it may be. So just what that model is and how it can be applied to both urban and and rural spaces. Yeah, so um, Trust Montana is a statewide community land trust. A community land trust is essentially a nonprofit 
that holds land um, to make it accessible and permanently affordable to people of low incomes and moderate incomes um, and just to the community in general to make sure that certain vital assets are, pre are preserved for the long term. And in the case of most, most community land trusts, it's, it's turned into a housing access tool to make housing permanently affordable, um, but it does work with farmland preservation as well. And Trust Montana can preserve land for farms, uh, commercial use, community center use, and housing, as well as historic preservation. So we, we, we have a pretty wide, wide mission in that way. Most community land trusts preserve housing affordability. And the way that we do that is that we separate the ownership of the land from the improvements on the land, which so the buildings and all the other things that are built on the land. And we enter into a ground lease with the owner of the improvements. And within that legal contract, um, there are restrictions to ensure that it stays affordable in perpetuity. It, it pretty much allows people to earn some equity, but not a windfall profit. So it changes the way that you think about real estate as a wealth building tool, but it also gives people an opportunity to, to earn a little bit of wealth rather than pay rent. So we often say that community land trust homeownership is an alternative to rental rather than an alternative to regular market rate homeownership, because the people that we're serving with this model generally um, don't have that option to buy a regular market rate home in the first place. So they're um, taking this like stepping stone from rental and being stuck paying a landlord forever towards um, ownership. They're going to pay a very small ground lease fee, buy a subsidized priced home, earn some equity. And when they move on, they usually have enough to buy a market rate home. That's great. And for those who, as far as how the land trust acquires, whether it's the land for farm use or for a building, a residence, the prior homeowner, is it that they donate that to the land trust or they get like a tax break? For example, for folks who might be interested in say, hey, I have some land that I would love to put into this system, um, whether it has a house on it or for possible for farmland. How does that part of it work or the incentives for those folks? Yeah, so uh, most of our land at this point has been donated. Some of it's been donated by um, other nonprofits and some has been donated by independent um, individual people that um, just want to give the, to the cause so they can get a tax break for that. Whether it has a house on it or not, um, we can take a donation and we're actually um, trying to spread the word a little bit better about that that um, potential for people because so many people really do care about the problems that we're seeing, the problem that we're seeing get worse and worse in almost all areas of Montana, being that the, the market is priced as if our wages are keeping up with it and a lot of people that live here can't afford to buy anything here anymore. If people do want to do something about it, that is one of the ways that they can help is they can at least uh, either donate land and a house or just land, or they can um, actually sell it at a discounted price and they can get a tax write-off for that as well based on the amount that they um, donated. So that's a, huge, that's a huge part of how we operate, but we're also looking into different ways to raise enough money to purchase land. But right now it's, it's really difficult to buy things at market price at market rate. So we do have some HUD funds 
that we're using to help people purchase homes on the regular market and then transition those homes into permanently affordable land trust homes. So we're providing up to $90,000 for home buyers in our pilot program, which is called Home Buyer Choice. And we are bringing that $90,000 of HUD funding to the closing and then transitioning the land into our land trust so that that home is then permanently affordable. Okay, that's great and, and helpful for folks who want to get involved. And while it is unique to different places around the state, as you mentioned, um, statewide, those pressures are being felt. If you can kind of say what, what that looks like right now with what's occurring statewide for accessibility and affordability, and it's also not a new concept either, right? We've seen this for decades, um, but I think folks are really feeling a ramp up in those pressures in the last few years. What is it looking like out there? What What is creating these pressures? So what it's looking like, just from my experience, being approached from different communities around the state right now, it's looking like people can't find employees for their small businesses or for their fire departments or restaurants because people can't afford the rent or to, to buy in those communities. And we're seeing that in, we're getting, we're getting calls from West Yellowstone, Bighorn County. We're working in the Gallatin Valley area, Helena. Um, we have one project in Missoula. We, um, we try not to work too much in Missoula because there is a land trust that can take projects um, in most areas of the city. And we're seeing it in Whitefish. Uh, the Flathead Valley is looking pretty bad. That's where I grew up. And we're also working in Red Lodge, which is actually one of our, where we first started our projects. So we're seeing it almost everywhere. And the way that it's being experienced by different communities is really similar. It's that, that lack of workforce. And if you just think about you know, the economic well-being of a community, that's super important. But then there's also just the very human aspect of it, which is just people are really suffering and people are having trouble staying in the communities that they love. And they're seeing people with a lot of more money come in and buy up everything. It's just kind of like heartbreaking as well as economically frustrating. So I'm we're definitely seeing that in Missoula where I live. I've lived here for 15 years and I'm just seeing the the character of the town change with more and more um, Airbnbs and properties being purchased by investors and had the, having the rents doubled almost overnight. And so in that way, property and real estate is being used you know, as a wealth building tool in a way that just locks people out of the community. That's where I see the community land trust model really, really being able to help. But at the same time, it is hard to purchase existing um, properties right now because we have to compete with all those people from out of state that earn a lot more money or our investment conglomerates or other groups that have just a lot of money. So yeah, Montana is a really, really attractive place right now, um, more than ever, I think. And it's making it hard for people to, to just remain in the community. Thank you. Yeah. And also something that doesn't get talked about often is homelessness in rural communities. Yeah. And can you touch on how this also applies for accessibility and entry for folks to use land for farming? Kind of the realities of what that situation is right now as far as folks who want to get into farming, um, the impossible sometimes barriers to that, and what that means for a place to keep those open spaces open for that purpose. Yeah, so we've been hearing for years, just anecdotally from beginning farmers or people that want to be farmers that, that, you know, they can't act, they can't afford market prices for land. And at the same time, Montana's um, farmer population is aging out. The average age I think is approaching 60 right now for Montana farmers. And 
a realtor in the Billings area the other day said to me, one of the most depressing things I've ever heard. <laughs> he said, he said, well, you know, the farmer's final crop is housing, right? And that is just how we think about land as the only way to build wealth and have a retirement fund. <laughs> um, it's a really tough thing to fight against when you want to make sure that the land is continued um, to be farmed. The, these, these aging farmers are that's their whole investment. And they're, a lot of them really do have to sell off their land for development if they're going to be able to retire. And um, we have been wanting to position ourselves as a community land trust to be able to intervene in that and help people retire, but not have to have their land to go into development. Once again, we just, we don't have quite enough funding um, sources to be able to offer at this point good enough prices for a lot of the farmers who who would be feeling that pressure. So we're hearing it more and more from different communities. And it's just, it's definitely something that's going to take a lot of creative solutions and partnerships. And I know a lot of people have been working on it for a long time, but we want to approach it from the understanding that people need to retire and they need to be treated fairly. But we also need to make sure that land is still um, in agriculture. It's a huge part of Montana's um, economy and and also just the natural world. And we need to keep open spaces open. So, you know, every time it comes to a point where somebody wants to offer us their farm, it, you know, they're like, well, we'd love to put it into a community land trust, but we need to get the market price for it. And then we're sort of stuck. So we continue to fundraise in hopes that we'll be able to actually pay that price eventually. But we do have a few farmland projects in the pipeline that we're trying to work on and open space bonds are definitely a thing that can be used for community land trust projects. Um, we can partner with conservation land trusts so that they put an easement on first before we purchase it and that can help give the landowner the tax breaks that they need that could then allow them to sell the, the land at a lower price. So we've been working with some, some easement folks to try to figure that out. And then we do have some really generous potential landowners that are coming to us that, that don't necessarily have to make that big chunk of money for retirement and would like to place their land into our land trust and make it affordable and perpetuity for farmers. So it is happening slowly. It's one of those things where it feels like we need to be acting with more urgency because it's people are aging out of farming right now. And yet we don't really have a lot of um, cash to, to jump in and help people. So, Absolutely. No, that's, um, that's good to hear that there's some partnerships too that you can work on to get that. And also donors that can contribute to help you be able to do that and put you in a position. It's, yeah. uh, there's a, another project we're working on right now with ranchers across the state. And especially with this year and the drought, you see those situations of being forced to sell right there in their face this year um, yeah. and and what they're up against financially. And if you don't mind sharing, you know, a specific example of, you know, a community that you've worked with or, you know, a, a form of, of success project that you've seen or is in progress of, of moving forward that you guys have worked, been a part of. So one of our projects that's kind of coming to full fruition right now is a project in Red Lodge where we have um, partnered with Red Lodge Area Community Foundation and Helena Area Habitat for Humanity. Essentially, the Helena Area Habitat brought mutual self-help funding through the USDA 
and brought all their expertise around volunteer builds and they came through and built four homes on some land that was donated to Trust Montana. So um, an individual wanted to see some homes built. She donated the land to Trust Montana, but we're not developers. We always partner with a developer to make our projects come through. So we had um, Helena Area Habitat and Red Ledge Area Community, Community Foundation doing all the build and finding the future home owners. And for the last year and a half or so, they've been working on building their own homes. And it's worked out really beautifully. They're, they're gorgeous homes. They're owned by three women who have been working in the community for a really long time in essential, essential jobs. They got to actually build their own homes. And then we will ensure that those homes stay affordable in perpetuity through our community land trust. So at the closing, we'll take the land and then we'll enter into the ground lease. And then as part of our long-term stewardship, we support the homeowners. If they ever um, have some financial difficulties, we can help them get out of a bad situation. Sometimes that means we help them sell their house quickly if they really can't keep paying the mortgage. But usually we try to just help them to avoid that situation. And so I'm really excited to see that one because it's the first time we've done a mutual self-help community land trust habitat USDA rural development project <laughs> that is a lot of people coming together to come up with the right solution to a really complex situation and making it work by leveraging all of our resources. So we're all leveraging one another's resources to make it happen. And those home prices are super low. So those people are going to be having like lower mortgage prices than their rent was. So that's really exciting. That is great. And we were, we've been following that, um, and it's a great example of that collaboration, which we love to see and, and promote. And yeah, if there's any other messages that you'd like to put out there for listeners, whether it's for folks, you know, within communities, if they want to participate, if they just reach out to you guys, or if it's for folks who are interested in donating their own land or donating funds for the yeah. community land trusts. Yeah, so I would just say if, if there's anyone out there who wants to figure out a way to help, there are all kinds of ways to help make, make our communities more equitable. But one thing that we're working on right now in Missoula County specifically is trying to find people who want to sell their home and make sure it goes to a person who is local and needs, needs an affordable home. We will bring up to $90,000 in down payment assistance. So the, the, the home seller doesn't necessarily need to take a hit financially. We just are looking for people who want to be a patient seller and help us get through the kind of complicated process of bringing these homes into our land trust and making sure that they go to somebody who's income qualified. So we do have three people who are income qualified that are out there looking for homes in Missoula County right now to purchase using our help. And we're really hoping to be able to find homes under $350,000, which is a difficult thing right now. So I would, I'm just spreading the word all the time about that. But then, of course, anytime someone is curious about whether they could donate um, land, a house, or some cash, we would love to talk to them and just try to figure out a way to leverage it and make it work for the communities that we're serving. That's great. Thank you. And and any messages for folks who are either current residents in Montana or looking to move to Montana, things that they can do to promote this equitable access for residents, even if it's not themselves, you know, if it's different types of policy that they can speak up to their local officials about or just yeah. things that they can get involved with. 
So any anyone in any community in Montana that wants to have Trust Montana come and give a presentation about what we can do, we love to come around to the different communities and just um, educate folks about it. Um, it's a, it is a really different way, I guess, of thinking about real estate. And so it takes some time to like wrap your head around. And so we do a ton of education and just um, advocacy. And we try to make sure that communities have incentives in their housing policies that allow for permanent affordability. And so if there's a community working on a housing policy or a planning update, we can come and explain how to incorporate community land trusts into that plan and that policy and help to make sure that you'll have investments that actually serve the community for the long term. Thank you, Hermina, for sharing your work and important messages with us. You can learn more about Trust Montana and the community land trust model, or if you're interested in selling your own home or potential farmland through the trust, at trustmontana.org and follow their Facebook and Instagram handles at Trust Montana. While Trust Montana has a statewide focus, we encourage you all to find out if you have a community land trust or similar entity in your own area. There are entities that work specifically with indigenous communities as well, such as Montana Native Growth Fund, a community development financial institution with a mission to promote sustainable tribal home ownership and opportunities by offering access to credit and capital, blended with culturally empowered education. Now to shift to a different type of change that Montana towns are experiencing. While many from urban centers may drive through Montana's small towns, perhaps only stopping to fuel up, we may think of the town as sleepy or in need of revitalization. But for many of these towns, if you experience it from the inside, you know just how busy these communities can be with community members wearing many hats to volunteer on boards, local services, plan community events, all in addition to their, quote, day jobs. Our next guest is an advocate of reframing the public image of labels such as rural decline. While these towns may not have a goal of becoming the next oasis for urbanites, like any size community, they still seek to better the experience of life for its residents. And Tara Mastel works with communities to do just that. Tara Mastel is the Community Development Program Director for Montana State University Extension. This program provides resources and training to help Montana's businesses, residents, and local governments envision, create, and sustain healthy and thriving communities. The program led a recent series of events titled Reimagining Rural. The events were held in rural communities across the state, and attendees heard speakers talk about key issues pertaining to rural communities. Following the speaker, participants took part in a discussion with their local community members, led by a trained facilitator. Communities were asked to work on one simple strategy that they can start on immediately. We'll announce the link of where to find recordings of these events after we speak with Tara. Tara Mastel is passionate about this work and has lived in and worked with changing rural communities across Montana, including her own hometown of Wolf Point, located on the Fort Peck Reservation in Northeast Montana. Tara speaks with us about her journey and her work, the need to rethink how we look at rural towns, and encouraging words for residents to become involved in the direction of their community's development. I mean, it was Mayberry when I was growing up in Wolf Point. I loved it very, very much. It was just a really wonderful place to grow up. And my friends from high school are very much like siblings. Whenever we see each other, it's just, it's just a cool experience to grow up in a small town. 
I mean, I will say it's changed quite a bit. Wolf Point is and Poplar are really, they've really been hit hard by the drug problems. It's, it's a different, it feels like, a, I mean, it's the same, but it's also quite different. And it's really distressing. A lot of my high school classmates, they're dying. We just lost one last week. We just lost another one of our, we've lost a few this year. It's not right, but so that's where I grew up and I just loved it. Um, however, I mean, I did grow up and I was definitely, I felt like I was a little bit of a square peg because I was just interested in city things. And so I went to college in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I did really like it there too. <laughs> so that was really fun to go to the city and see what that was like. And I just loved every bit of it. And I stayed there. And then I met my husband and the thing that I really liked about him is he knew where Wolf Point was and he liked it <laughs> and he knew North Dakota and he knew the agricultural areas and he liked the plains and he was very into, um, he was a grain merchandiser. He worked at the Minneapolis Grain Exchange. Like I literally could not have brought home a better, <laughs> uh, you know, potential husband. So that was, that was cool. So in my time in the city, I, I had so much fun working on national advertising campaigns and I did the research. So I understood the consumer's relationship with the brand and I traveled all over the country and I did focus groups with consumers. Um, but I never really felt like I never connected with the people that I worked with in a meaningful way. And at a certain point I was like, okay, there's something else out there. And my husband ended up he got laid off like a couple of times because the grain industry is really collapsing. And so he's just like, you know what, let's just go back to school. So he went back and got his master's degree at Montana state in agricultural economics. And that was a great time for me to kind of pivot. I, I what I wanted to do was find a career where I could bring that wealth and the prosperity that I saw in those urban areas in that marketing environment. If I could bring that to the rural places that I knew really well. So that was kind of what drove me. And so I, I just kind of found my way into economic development and that was definitely a good fit, economic community development. So I started, like I started, I wrote a grant for the Fort Peck tribes. They gave me a chance and I wrote this grant and it was funded 300, about $350,000 to help the Fort Peck tribes with social service program that they wanted to do. So that was pretty cool. And then I, I got a job at the Department of Commerce doing um, a rural business development program. I wanted to get my master's degree. So I went back and I got a master's degree um, in Minnesota and then we came back and I started working in extension and I got really kind of my dream job working in extension in community development, working in Whitehall, just, I had great colleagues there and we just, we got so much done. We just had a super, really good synergy and we got a lot of really great projects done. I, I mean, I did everything from start a farmer's market that is still going today. I, I mean, I didn't start it. I got the people together and helped them together. We all started it and then got the infrastructure for a 200 acre business park and then renovated a very large main street historic main street building which was i mean it was so great it was such a so many very satisfying projects but all a wide range of things but very much learning and understanding rural leadership who who gets things done how it happens and rural by rural, like it's different. The, the organizations that make thing ha things happen in rural, they're 
for the most part, they're unstaffed. Like they're volunteers mm -hmm. that come together working in organizations and they don't have staff. So that's a different kind of thing than when you have staff, it's a different situation. You don't, you have people that can help you do stuff and it's their job, but otherwise you're working with volunteers and that's kind of what, what I worked with a lot. And I'm sure many communities can relate to that and <laughs> are in that boat as well. Mm -hmm. And can you tell me some about um, your current position in the work that that's yeah. been entailed? I know there's many things that that work probably entails, yeah. but. So I worked there, I worked at that county agent job for about 10 years. And then I took a position with the local government center, which is based on campus and serves the whole state. So I worked for them for five years. And just last year, they offered me a full-time position doing kind of leadership and rural community vitality. Um, for extension. So it's a statewide position. So I kind of, it's almost like I'm an extension agent for the extension agents. Like I help develop programs that they can use on a statewide level and I help them with their local programming. And so what I'm working on right now is, so reimagining rural is a big piece of it. And it's all about helping rural communities uh, re reframe how they see themselves, um, helping to see themselves in a more positive light, looking at the positive aspects of rural living, because there's a, a ton, helping to inspire local volunteers so that they can um, have some really great ideas for ways to make their communities, improve the quality of life in their communities, make it even better, and inspire people to get involved and make things happen. So that's reimagining rural. From that came, uh, so we have been following the work of Ben Winchester from the University of Minnesota. And he did a study on the brain gain, which is the phenomenon of people moving to rural areas in their thirties and forties for a kind of quality of life, um, great place to raise their kids, that kind of thing. So when we were talking about, when Ben was talking about that, um, he people were in Montana were skeptical, like, wait a minute, is that, the same here as it is in Minnesota. And so we, with the support of Montana Community Foundation and the Farm Bureau, we got funding. They funded us to redo that study. It's the newcomers survey is what we're calling it. So that's come out of Reimagining World. We just are getting our data and it's so exciting to see because it's telling us of people that are moving here, why are they moving here? What do they like about it? Um, what motivated them? I'm also working on a remote work certificate program, which is, um, we're an affiliate of the Utah State University Extension. So it's a, a way for people that want to do remote work to kind of gain the skills so that they can stay where they're at and get a, a job that might pay better or it might fit their skills a little bit better. I'm working on a few other things, but those are kind of my main priorities. We are working a lot on helping to get more community-based leadership programs across the state because there's a challenge in, well, everywhere right now to, that we don't have enough leaders. We don't have enough volunteers in, in our local communities. So um, by developing this grassroots leadership program, we hopefully will be able to get more volunteers, kind of pull them out of the woodwork and get them feeling like they're able to contribute in, to their local community. That's great. All, all the good things. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> And the critical so things. It's so yeah, fun. I bet. Mm -hmm. And can you tell me about this, you know, concept of shifting the narrative with these kind yeah. of generalized narratives that we have about say rural yeah. communities and you know there's a general stroke of folks saying that 
of this concept of rural decline. Um, yeah. Can you tell me what you are seeing in rural places across Montana? I know everyone, every place is different. Um, and why you think that that narrative is wrong? Well, I, a lot of my thinking has been shaped by Ben Winchester, this person from University of Minnesota extension. And really because when he, he things that he's talked about, it's like my life. Like I came back to, <laughs> I came back to Montana. I brought a spouse. I brought kids. <laughs> my husband brought a job. It's just has rung true to me. I mean, so a lot of what Ben Winchester is saying is we're so concerned about the brain drain, just really everything that we talk about with rural just really tends to be negative. <laughs> and so how is that impact? How does that impact rural communities? The people that living in are living in rural right now, if they felt better about where they're living, if they felt more pride, if they felt more optimism, would they, would there be more investment in rural? I think those are all just really interesting questions. So like Ben Winchester, he spoke last night at our reimagining rural, our first night. And he said, he made the point, he's like, everybody's talking about these rural towns dying. He's like, show me the dead towns. Like, where are they? The towns are not dying. They're still there. People still love them. You know, they do move away, but there's people, our, our study shows there are people of all ages moving to every town in the state. Yes, our young people move away, but that's what young people do. They want to go to the city. They want to go to the bigger place and, you know, see what the world, the big wide world is all about. It's just kind of the nature of humans to want to explore a little bit when they're younger, but then they want to, but then they come back. It's not necessarily where they grew up, but they come back to a real place and they bring their family, bring a spouse, maybe um, bring a business. I just think the story is not all ne negative about rural. Absolutely. And about this concept of revitalizing rural communities, you know, that some folks might hear that term and think that it means like, let's get to a point of being a, you know, a miniature Bozeman or a Missoula of Montana. You know, there's something in on the yeah. phone that you mentioned that I think is a really important concept that it's not every rural town, their goal isn't to get to that <coughs> level of being where everybody's moving in from all over the place and you're having these, you know, hip restaurants on every corner. Like that's not the goal of revitalizing rural. What does that truly mean on the ground for folks in the community? Well, I mean, the term revitalizing in, implies that there's, it needs to be revitalized. And I just don't think that's the case. Like um, when we lived in Whitehall, I think I said this on the phone, like we were crazy busy. Like we were running our butts off every night because there's so much going on and we were involved. And I think a, a lot of these maybe the people that see things as needing to be revitalized, they are from the outside and they're not involved. And they just, it looks like a, it looks like there's not much going on, but there is a lot going on in small towns. I think if you ask people that live there, I think a lot of, I mean, there's going to be some people that say, no, it's so boring here, but I think a lot of people will say, yeah, there's tons going on and you can't make it to everything there's too much going on sometimes, but at the same time. So, I mean, people care about their towns and they want to make them better. They want to enhance the quality of life. So uh, you're living there and there are people that they want to, they want to paint murals on the walls or they want to plant flowers. They want to have a, an event to get people together. I mean, people are just driven. If they care about their town, they see ways to make it better. And really that's all about making it, increasing the quality of life in the community. So 
we need to find a better word than revitalizing because I, I don't necessarily think that towns need to be revitalized. I think they can always improve the quality of life and make things um, happen there that increase the enjoyment of the people living there. And can you give us a specific example of something that you've seen in any of these communities that you guys have worked with, or maybe that's ongoing in the mm -hmm. process, you know, a story oh. of what you've seen that's like, yeah, like yeah. good things are happening. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I have to talk about Haver. So um, last year, Haver participated in Reimagining Rural and one of our speakers, Sarah Calhoun, talked about how valuable arts and culture are in rural communities and how much those events are appreciated by younger, younger people that live there. And that got the Haver people thinking. They're like, you know, we have an arts council, but it's basically not functioning right now. And they said, let's, let's get that going. Let's get that fired up. And so from that came this huge outdoor concert last spring they had they said they had over 400 people attending and then they created an art alley in haver which is just like you know just like how wonderful taking in an you know a forgotten space and then making it beautiful and something for people to enjoy i mean that's exactly what we plan reimagining rural for was like to just put new ideas in front of people and have them talk about them locally right there. And then where does that bring you? Where does that lead you? It's exactly what we had hoped would happen and I, who would have ever imagined. That's awesome. Oh, I'm sorry I missed that. <laughs> I know, me too. But I, I want to go through there to check out the art. I know, I haven't seen it yet either. Right. I want to stop and see it, yeah. And can you tell us that how you're also on the board for the Red Lodge Area Community Foundation? Um, and for those who aren't familiar with Red Lodge, can you kind of tell us what changes they've been experiencing and some of the things that the foundation is addressing, just kind of broad strokes of that? Yeah, so I was honored to be asked to be on the board of the Red Lodge Area Community Foundation. I mean, they really do some amazing things. I was just really enamored with them because I work with, that's part of my job is to help nonprofit organizations or community groups, like help them, you know, run more effectively and um, have better practices with how they run their organization and stuff. So, I mean, the Red Legendary Community Foundation, they do all of those things. <laughs> they do all the things that we recommend. They actually do them. And it's really cool to see that and to see that how that benefits the organization. And so the, the changes in Red Lodge, I mean, I've lived here three years now since we've been here. I mean, there were people moving in when we first moved here, but boy, it's really ramped up in the last um, two years for sure. Lots of pleas for housing on Facebook and that kind of thing. Like people want to move here and if they're renting or um, they want to buy a house, there's just not enough housing. Of course, short staff, all the businesses are challenged with staff. So the Red Lodge Area Community Foundation has been working in affordable housing. It's, a, it's such a cool organization because they kind of fill that, they fill all the gaps for a town, like a rural town. Like we don't have a lot of services that larger towns have. So it kind of fills in the gaps in lots of different ways. That's great. Yeah. And um, we'll be speaking with someone from Trust Montana as well about the specific housing project they're doing with Red Lodge Area Community Foundation. It's really exciting. Um, and any other words of advice or inspiration for folks who are in rural communities who want to be active in the direction of their community development, as well as, you know, realistic challenges 
Like, as you mentioned, a lot of these communities rely on volunteer participation in this work, which can be challenging. You know, any advice on how to navigate those things as folks try to get involved or start up their own entities in their communities? They might hit a wall, you know, or get discouraged, um, but just to let them know that they're not alone in that, right? I mean, it seems to me, this is not research-based, but it does seem to me that people get involved because they want the excitement of making something happen, of seeing that achievement in the community. So that's why they get involved. That it, To me, I mean, that's my observation. It is not research-based. Yeah, sure. But, but to run really well, you need to have, once you get to a certain point, you have to have like policies and procedure, you know, you gotta have the super boring stuff that people don't really want to do, but having those building blocks in place, if you're lucky, some communities are lucky enough, they have somebody that that's, they really love doing that. And they're, you're so lucky if you do have that, that they put together policies, procedures in place that help your organization run a little bit better. And you can go a little bit farther from that. It's really hard because, yeah, you just see that where people just, they're so excited to have the big event and raise the big money or have the party or, you know, whatever, get the mural painted, whatever it is. I mean, that's why we advocate having grassroots community leadership programs, because you have that opportunity to build the skills of your local leaders. So they learn about their own leadership capacity and their own style and how to work together with people and while you're going through that, those kinds of programs and you build your relationships with people in the community and all of those things just make you more effective, make you individually more effective, but more effective as a town. Um, there is research that shows that the more skilled local leadership is, the more successful the communities are. So we're trying to build more grassroots leadership development programs across the state so we can have more communities that are doing really, really great. Um, it is a long-term investment though, um, but just like investing in employees, it's similar investing in the growth and development of your local volunteers. Um, it does pay off in the long run. Things work better. Um, your organizations have more capacity to you know, make those bigger projects happen. As far as advice, like how do you do that? It's hard. It take you you have to be lucky enough to have that dedicated volunteer that can put the time in and over a long period of time. But when you make it happen, it's really it can be really magical. Sure, and kind of um, that momentum will likely mm -hmm. build up a bigger community of folks to help you. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's important as that element of you know the local folks on the ground being the ones leading that work. It's also important to tap into resources that are available, um, such as your program and MSU Extension. Does the program work as something like folks could contact your program directly? Um, you know, just for folks who are like, I wanna tap into the resources that MSU Extension can offer, how would they go about that? So we are, we have a pretty great extension program in Montana. We have extension, field faculty, extension agents are also called. We have representation in every county in the whole state. They have an extension agent that is there on the ground working in their community. So you can go and talk to your extension agent. So each, each extension agent um, has their own area that they work in, but they we do definitely focus on what are the local needs in the community. So there are agents that are more focusing on ag, 
or natural resources or 4-H or family consumer science. Um, we have a few that are working exclusively in community development. There's more of a openness to doing some community development projects, regardless of what, you know, what your background is, your education is. So I guess it's a long way of saying not every agent is going to be able to dive into a leadership program. But if you go to them and you tell them that you're interested in this and you see here's the benefits that you see, um, you might be able to work with them and um, they might be able to bring in a program or something like that. And that's what I would do is I help those extension agents do that on the local level. A lot of what we do with an extension is we work with volunteers. So um, if somebody did want to have a local leadership program in their community, they would definitely work with their extension agent and the extension agent would not be able to pull it off on their own. They would need local volunteers to help them with that. So that's a way that they could, um, you know, maybe entice it <laughs> if they're willing to put in some time with that extension agent and work on it together. Okay. No, that's great. Um, great starting points for folks to get tapped into that. Um, and any other final messages that you have for folks either within these communities, the communities that you often are working with, or those who are looking to move to rural Montana? or Montana in general, for those who Montana will be a new place for them. Any other messages on that that you want to get out there? Yeah, I mean, I guess this work with reimagining rural and realizing that newcomers have always been coming to our rural places. I mean, in the last year, I think as Montanans, we feel a little, um, a little maybe overwhelmed by all the so many people coming to our state. I mean, I'm very, I understand that very much. Um, but I would I would encourage us to think about our our state and our especially our, even our rural places have really always been changing. They've always changed. Hearing my dad just came to visit us this weekend and just hearing him talk about Wolf Point when I when he was growing up and then when his dad was there and when his grandpa came. Um, it's, you know, the changes are pretty significant and that's not that long, you know, overall, that's not that long. So um, we are seeing a lot of change right now, but um, what, what we're finding in this research is that people that are moving to Montana and that are moving to these rural communities, even if they're moving from another Montana town, they're, they're, they're moving, they have the same, they value the same thing as the people that are already living there. They're moving to that town because of what's so great about it right now. And it's very similar to the people that live there as far as what they love about it too. So um, I guess those are things that I, I hope more people can be keep in mind as they see all these people, like they're moving, they love the same things you love about it. And what are they bringing to your town that you can incorporate them in and you can overall, the town can benefit from them. We did a focus group with people that have recently moved to Montana. It was really sad that every one of those people in the focus group, somebody had said something really mean to them. They had been yelled at at a gas station to go home or um, they had been, one way or another, somebody was very rude to them because they were new to our state. And I just, I mean, that really bothers me. Like, I don't want people to think that we're mean here. Like I wanted people to think that we're nice and we're welcoming, you know, like it's, it's, a, it's a challenge that we're dealing with right now in Montana, like all these people coming in, but I mean, they're coming for the same reasons that we all live here and love it. And we gotta, we gotta think about what they can add to our community, especially in the rural places where there's a concern about decreasing population. We, we know that over the decades, our young people leave people in their thirties and forties, they come back into town and they're the ones that keep 
the population stable or growing. <laughs> They've always been coming, but that trend has been happening. 30s and 40 year olds moving into our rural communities. That trend has been happening for decades. It's been happening since the 1970s. So it's not new. We, they come and they bring these, they bring kids for the schools. They, they bring businesses, they support local businesses. So they are really a value and um, hopefully we can be more welcoming. Sure. No, and it, you know, it likely comes from a place of fear of change, right? But as you said, the change has always been happening, but yeah, it's how slow. do we have conversations with each other and work together so that that change is beneficial for everybody? You know, it's not just a fear of, you know, the negative things that it might bring of rising housing costs or that type of thing, but okay, how do we get ahead of that and start having these conversations working together? Thank you to Tara Mastel for speaking with us. You can learn more about her program's work and view the recordings from the Reimagining Rural series at msuextension.org backslash community backslash reimagine-rural.html. As Tara mentioned, you can also find your county's MSU Extension office to tap into the resources they offer, which are available in most counties and tribal reservations. Thank you so much to all of our guests on the show today. All the links that we mentioned are listed in the episode show notes. If you're listening today as a longtime resident of Montana or anywhere in the country, really, and you're nervous about what these changes may bring, I think the message rings loud of the importance of becoming involved in your community, even if right now you think this does not impact you directly. Show up to planning board and city council meetings. Engage with your elected officials. See if your local zoning and growth plans have the health of the people and place in mind, with attention to equitable access for the cost of living and impacts to land and waters. That's also a personal request and plea to elected officials everywhere. I think that too often we feel like we have no control over these things, which is absolutely untrue. Sustainable change is largely dictated by policy, and if done properly, that policy is dictated by input from the public. Listening to others is key. When we remain open to new perspectives, we create resiliency in how we move forward. I encourage you to reach out to newcomers. As humans, we fear the unknown, and we can fear change. But it's true that these changes have been occurring for quite some time. And for those of us who are not indigenous to these lands, we have to recognize that either ourselves or our ancestors also migrated here at one point, seeking the lifestyle that Montana offered. On that note, for new residents or those who are looking to call Montana home, as Pat mentioned, become a part of the community. Educate yourself on the place, the people, the landscape. Come with humility and respect for the place that you want to make your new home. Like many things, I know it's not easy. It takes effort, time, and is extremely complex. But I'd like to think that when we come together and genuinely listen to one another and plan in a way that looks to the future rather than cutting corners to serve only immediate needs and empowering those in our communities that are too often overlooked, then we can build stronger communities, sustainable communities that also reflect that health of the people to the health of the surrounding landscape. Thank you all so much for listening. This podcast was recorded on the homelands of the Salish, Kalispe, and Kootenai peoples. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more inspiring actions to help you find your role in a thriving planet. 
We'd also greatly appreciate it if you leave us a review. It helps other people to find us. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories Number 4 Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thanks for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.